From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Welcome back to another episode of Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and I am here with Mary Callen. She is our 2023 Defenders of Capitalism Award winner from the Leadership Program of the Rockies. Most of our listeners know what that is, know what the Leadership Program of the Rockies LPR is. But for those who don't, I think I maybe should say a little bit since we're talking about an award winner here. The Leadership Program of the Rockies is the premier institute, at least in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain region, and we're aiming for hire even across America, for training emerging leaders about capitalism, the founding of America, individual rights, the proper role of government. And we're actually in our recruiting season now. So those of you who are listening should look up our website, defendersofcapitalism.com. You can find out more about us there, but look up Leadership Program of the Rockies and check out one of our recruiting events. We have them all over the state over the next couple of months. They're kind of a happy hour, meet and greet. You just, you learn uh, about what the program is. It's a little bit of a social thing. We have a small presentation where we tell people about what the leadership program means. But if you're interested in changing the world and becoming a part of the Army for Freedom, Check us out a little bit. As I mentioned, we're very excited here in studio. We've got Mary Callen, who won our Defenders of Capitalism Award just recently. Just uh, our graduation award ceremony was in June here, and I am delighted to have Mary in studio. Mary, say hello to the audience. Hello, and thank you for having me here, Mike. This is great. I was looking forward to this very you much. You and me both. I really enjoyed your presentation uh, in our final competition for LPR, and I've really enjoyed learning a little bit more about you. And so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. I, give a little bit of background about yourself. I, I know that you are very well educated. you got a PhD in biochemistry, bio... It's literally now called bioagricultural sciences. When I graduated, the degree is actually in um, plant pathology and weed science. Wow. But I did, I guess you could call it genetic engineering in wheat, trying to generate herbicide-tolerant wheat through various techniques. So how did you get interested in that field? How did you decide you wanted to... I mean, did you get a bio undergrad, or were you in sciences? I actually got an agronomy undergrad. And someone asked me once, agronomy, isn't that oriental paper folding? And no, <laughs> it's really, really the study of crops and soils. So I, I came with an agricultural undergrad. So how, how did you get interested in agricultural? Did you grow up in a farming, ranching background, anything like no, that? No, no, not at all. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And my family, when I was very small, we moved to the north shore of Long Island and just in typical suburbs. And I loved plants and things. So that was kind of fun. And I loved science. You know, I was I was really a geek growing up, Mike. I was really, a, and it, you know, it was really a good thing. My sister was the pretty one. I was the geek. So that was good. We had our, our places. But, you know, I was kind of a logical kid, I think. So I was thinking, well, as I was coming through, you know, junior high and going into high school, I thought, well, I like science. Then I figured, well, people always have to eat. So if I go into agriculture, 
I'll always have a job. So it was basically that simple. And you have a lot more education than that. So we'll hear more about your executive training at, at Notre Dame and at uh, Harvard and, and a number of different things. And now your career is in teaching people how to fundraise, right? American Philanthropic? Right. That's, a, that's the firm that I work for. Uh, it was American Philanthropic up until about January. We, we changed that to Amphil just because American Philanthropic was such a mouthful to say and to type. So yeah, and that's what we do is predominantly uh, generating resources and doing uh, you know strategic work for nonprofits, predominantly nonprofits, a few for-profits, but okay. yeah. So fundraising is, is our main focus, definitely. You know, and I, I got to ask you more about the background. I introduced you when I, I was trying to be funny, and I think you got a kick out of this, but I don't know enough. I, I, I was not wanting to be inaccurate or offensive. I, part of what I was trying to say is how optimistic I am about the future, because in the years that I've been doing this, training people about capitalism and having people compete for this award to be the champion, the defender of capitalism for that year's class, I had been very skeptical as to whether we would ever have current office holders win the award. And we did recently have somebody who actually was a politician, so to speak. But I, I introduced you and said, you know, there are two kinds of people that I thought would never win this award politicians and former Catholic nuns. <laughs> and I don't know enough about your your uh, religious training or background to really say that. I just thought it was kind of kind of funny. And uh, again, hopefully you're okay. That You look like you responded well to it. Oh, yeah. It, it, I'm pretty impossible to offend. So... <laughs> But tell us more about that. I mean, uh, is it a, is it appropriate to say you are a former Catholic nun? Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, I was born and raised Catholic, cradle Catholic. And when I was a teenager, uh, that's the time if you're if you're really Catholic, I guess you start having these you know thoughts of maybe pursuing a religious life. And so I thought about it as a teenager. But at that point, we had moved from New York to Pagosa Springs, Colorado, out in the middle of nowhere. There was no way I could discern entering a convent at that point. So I went on and went to school. And then it wasn't until much later um, when I was in my mid-40s and kind of that time when a lot of people go and think about second careers. And I had some a really uh, some really life-changing things happen when I was working in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry that all of a sudden the calling came back. They always call it a calling, mm-hmm. you know, when you enter a convent or religious life. So um, I did. I said, oh, my gosh, let's look at this. But at that point, you know, when you're over 40, there's not too many re- religious communities that want older women. They really? want They want young, healthy women. <laughs> Huh, they got to get some work out of them, Mike, until they, you know. <laughs> That's right. I guess it's like it's right. like most employers, right? They got to right. they got to see that uh, future potential. But you seem like you've got a lot of energy right now. I mean, knock on wood, yeah. But so tell us more about that experience. Yeah. So I decided to just start looking for a convent, and there were very few actually. So which wasn't too surprising. And if you're Catholic, you know there there actually is a difference between a nun and a sister. A nun lives in a cloister. You know, you go into the cloister, you never really come out. You're, you're there to pray, and you, you basically die to the world is what they call it. A religious sister is more in the world, and that's what I was. I was a religious sister. So I, I found a little community in Wisconsin, and uh, what was kind of serendipitous was their mother house, kind of their headquarters, was actually in Germany. And I had worked for a German company for part of my career, so I had learned German. And so here I met these German sisters in Racine. And so um, I was able to enter the community and then go back and forth between Würzburg, Germany, and Racine, Wisconsin as, as a sister. It was a small community, but it was a great experience. 
great experience. So it's, it is kind of ironic, isn't it, that someone who vowed to poverty has won the Defender of Capitalism that's Award. That's a fascinating <laughs> thing, right? That's what we want to dive into. That's, what, that's why I've been anticipating this uh, conversation with you for so long. Are, are really looking forward to it. And we'll get into it more. I mean, that's one of the major things that I think our audience might find interesting is how you uh, got to that point. And, and first of all, let's back up and talk about just your general experience with the leadership program of the Rockies. We'll, we'll dive into the Defenders of Capitalism part of it and, and your presentation and how you won the award and, and that kind of stuff. But tell me, tell, tell our audience more about um, you know, how you found out about LPR and your experience going through the class. Tell us, tell us more about that. Sure. You know, I started working with AMPHIL uh, April of 2022. And our focus at AMPHIL is almost exclusively on right-of-center organizations, liberty-loving, you know, organizations that are very mission-oriented around the founding principles. And, and it's still a, a wide array of organizations. But we really are, you know, in that mode. And that's who we serve. And so my director in the group, he said, you know, I know these guys over at LPR, and this seems like a good program. I'd like to take it someday, but I've got three kids. And so he said, you know, look at this and see. And I honestly never heard of it. So um, I looked at it, I said, yeah, this looks really good. I said, I know I'm new here, and I, I know I'm not like 29 anymore. So if you want to invest in doing this, I would love to do it. And they said, yes, please. Because, you know, learning these things and being more fluent in what... LPR teaches you, you know, being able to defend the principles of freedom, liberty, and capitalism. That's entirely what the organizations we serve, that's entirely what they focus on. So learning to do that better. So is there, I mean, for Amphil, is there, is that just a natural market or is it sort of a litmus test? I mean, if somebody came to you that was left of center, but wanted your expertise in consulting, would you begin, no, I'm sorry, we're not the right fit? It depends a lot on what they do and what their mission are. Like we we do serve, there are human services organizations that are, you know, actually right of center. We really shy away from any organizations that are really promoting government involvement, government control, what we would call wokeism now. We're very Mm anti-woke. We really are based on that beautiful tendency of Americans to freely form civil associations. De Tocqueville came to the United States, and that was one of his most profound observations, right? With Americans, they just form these civil associations around so many causes and activities. And and so that's what we look for, are people that want to do that and that foster that. And so we work with a lot of public policy organizations, but we also work with, um, we've got a couple of organizations that uh, work with homeless. Oh gosh. Um, I worked with a med tech organization recently. Um, Yeah. It's a, it's a real wonderful array of organizations. So that's kind of how you found out about the leadership program. And then kind of when, I don't know which, if you went to one of the recruiting events that I just mentioned, if you kind of came in and said, okay, let me check this out. Right. I went to the one in Northern Colorado in Fort Collins, because that's where I was living at the time. And boy, that is such a refreshing event to go to if you haven't been exposed to LPR at all, is to walk into a, a, this was like a barbecue outdoors, Mm -hmm. you know, it was beautiful last summer, and to instantly be at home with these people that think the way you do and believe the things that you do, but not in this kind of, you know, vanilla uniformity. It's the wonderful, uh, you know, color that that freedom-loving people have, right? They're lively, and they believe in 
in liberty and freedom. They believe in everything that America was founded on. You can speak freely and not feel like you have to guard your words. It was instantly that atmosphere. And then, you know, I had known Bob Schaefer when I was working on my doctorate. And I didn't know that he was involved in LPR until that night. I was like, oh, there's Bob Schaefer. And then, you know, Shari speaks so brilliantly at the, at the events. You know, she so how did you, you knew Bob Schaefer how? Just for the audience, Bob Schaefer is our chairman. He's our chairman and leader of the leadership program of the Rockies. He also runs the best school program in the state in Fort Collins in Liberty Common. But he's, he's our leader. And so how did you know him beforehand? It's funny. When I was working on my doctorate, I, was, I started getting very involved in politics. And from early on, my family was very, you know, freedom-oriented and I guess libertarian, you would say, in a lot of ways. So I ran for and won the state chairmanship for the Libertarian Party here in Colorado in 1988, 89, and I believe 91. So I served about three terms as the state chairman of the Libertarian Party. And this was while I was in my doctoral program. And here I am in my doctoral program, and I'm in the fields working on weeds and wheat and who was in office at the time but Bob Schaefer okay you know and he he came out to the fields and and it was funny and here I was you know state chair of a libertarian party and and Bob Schaefer oh he's he's a republican like well we'll give him a little time you know and <laughs> I actually apologized to him at the end of LPR <laughs> LPR uh, the last class I said you know I have to apologize he said why is I said you know I didn't give you credit for what you were really doing at the time I said I was an arrogant young libertarian, and here you were on this trajectory to do so many great things, and one of them being LPR. Yeah, and he and he was a fantastic uh, congressman. He and, really and, and part was. of his he district really has uh, a number of different uh, communities that are in agriculture, and so he was definitely involved in that. That's fascinating. Um, you know, every time I learn more and peel back the onion of Mary Callan, it's like there's more to it. So the the, the chairman of the Libertarian Party. That doesn't seem like it uh, connects that well with someone who says, well, I'm part of an organization that's anti-woke now. But from what I recall, and I'm oftentimes sympathetic with libertarians. In fact, I get lumped in with people who are libertarian-leaning or, or maybe formal libertarians because a lot of times the sounds that I make about liberty and freedom and rights, you know, that, that uh, oftentimes rings true to their views. Mm-hmm. But I usually associate libertarianism as being oftentimes focused on very small battles for liberty, like, you know, legalization of drugs, which I think, I actually think, you know, is appropriate. I don't know, we can talk about that as well, but, mm-hmm. but it's weird to hear that, you know, you were the leader of the Libertarian Party in, in Colorado for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was like 25 at the time, you know, mm-hmm. looking back, I think, what kind of organization... <laughs> Well, Alexa, but at that time, were you, were you uh, ideologically in alignment uh, with that view? Yes, but I will say I have to agree with you that, especially at that time, this was like 88, mm-hmm. 89. I mean, there was a huge push by a lot of the Colorado libertarians for the legalization of marijuana. There right. was this, you know, I would say a majority of the people involved at the state level, that was a big push for them. Yep. And so it would be a moot point now, obviously, but but I didn't really identify with that because that wasn't my whole scene. You know, I was very much about free market, more focused on, on capitalism and freedom. And when we weren't at that point in 88, all these issues about, you know, even some of the LGBT things that are now being coerced onto us now, we're really not a there were not hot topics at that point, you know, and the environment has changed so much. 
Um, and the legalization of drugs overall, even, you know, victimless crime. I think some of the best memories I have of those times was that the Libertarian Party is founded on some really core principles that are very much in line with what we learned at LPR, right? I mean, basically, you know, the founding principles of the, of the nation. I think the so, at least on the surface. I, I yeah. actually think there's, there's some real, at least from my perspective. Now, again, LPR is nonpartisan. Uh, right. you know, we are we, right. we have people who are Democrats, we have people who are Republicans, we have people who are libertarians, we have people who are non affiliated and all over the, the political spectrum who go through the program. For people who are kind of maybe listening to this going, Hey, this sounds intriguing and, and I'm liberty minded uh, and want to check it out. I mean, the, the biggest thing that ties together people who are associated or wanna or attracted to our program is that focus on you know, the founding vision of America and that a positive view that they have for freedom and American exceptionalism, however they interpret that themselves. Right. Uh, and that certainly can be associated with libertarianism. My personal view is that the libertarians are really anti-principle and don't have enough of a founding principle. I think that they focus on liberty, certainly, and that's, you know, hence the, the the label libertarianism, but they they don't really have a deeper understanding of where that liberty comes from and that might be, you know, an interesting topic to delve into as well. But it's just fascinating to me that you're, that you were. Did you enjoy that role? Did you enjoy that that uh, role, leadership role in, in a political party that way? You know, I I think from the standpoint that that those are the principles that I focused on when mm-hmm. I was there. That was what was most important to me was you know getting back to the founding principles of the country. You know, libertarians are something. They're it's like herding cats, right? Freedom-minded people. How do you get them all in one place? And they ranged everywhere from hardcore anarchists to yep. you know, so um, they were they were a tough group to to deal with that way. But they were good people, very much well-intentioned and wanting to change things for the better. I think what I loved about it was that knowing just the principles. You could go, and, and I was, you know, called to debate the state chairman of the Republican and Democratic parties, and they would show up at the debate with their papers and the platforms and the most recent statement on this or that, and I would really show up with, like, nothing or the declaration. And being just arrogant enough at 25 to think, you know, I got nothing to be afraid of. Right now, I would mind shaking my boots Well, I love more. that. You were, all you, all but, you needed to arm yourself with is your own heart well, and that, mind and the declaration. I mean, that, And you could reason through pretty much every single thing that would be asked, right? Because there was, the platform was just that. So that I loved about it. What I did not like was, uh, you know, I would spend time at, at the State House, at the Capitol in Denver. And I literally remember the first time when I was up there and I got, I had a meeting with the, and I won't mention his name because it wouldn't be nice, but um, set with the Senate Majority Leader. No, I want to press you on it, but I won't. (laughs) After, after the recording, Mike. (laughs) And he was very gracious in his beautiful office and welcoming the state chairman and, you know, da, da, da. And we talked, and after about 10 minutes of listening to him talk, it was like the scales fell from my eyes, and it's like, oh my gosh, he's been talking for 10 minutes, and he hasn't said anything. And, you know, once you hang out, you know, in, in those spheres a little more, you realize just how unreal and kind of smarmy a lot of yep. what happens there is, and and just not productive. And it was really, I think that got me out of it, because I could not take more of having so out of that. it, particularly with regard to you know being an activist that way, or just like oh, I'm done with politics, I don't want to deal with these people. Well, I think you realize, especially being the state chairman of the third party, mm-hmm. 
very tough to get a foothold, right? Every time we wanted to get on the ballot anywhere, we had to petition. And I don't know if you've ever petitioned to get on a ballot. It is nasty business. It is really hard. And every time we'd get one person on the ballot, the requirement for signatures would go up the next time. And it's just brutal. And we didn't have deep pockets. And so, you know, we couldn't pay petitioners. And there were many times I'd get thrown out of parking lots. And so you realize how much you have to fight against to be a third party. And it just, I realized that there must be a better way to tackle this. And I didn't see a clear path to really making a dent to promoting exactly what you know, we talk about an LPR, you know, how can you be more effective? This was not the way to be more effective. And I think a lot of the, at that point anyway, the, the libertarians were oftentimes their own worst enemy. Yeah. They, they often had trouble presenting professionally and reasonably. And a lot of the times they'd go in being bombastic and, you know, it's just not a, a reasonable way to approach things. Yeah. And like LPR, that's one thing so great about LPR. Every single class, there's a, a focus on the class, like learning persuasion, and you learn the principles of the declaration. Uh, Professor Granowitter comes in, and, and, and yourself coming in every single class and learning those foundational principles and how to speak to them. And then all of you all putting us on the spot and having to answer questions and defend this. And what's the principle behind that, you know? Those are the kind of things where I think, like what LPR does, where you can really learn how to get a toehold and to make a difference. And like, like Shari always says, you have your, your proximity influence. Some of us say, you know, you keep your own side of the street clean first, right? Yep. And then, and then we can make a huge difference. Yeah. So I had interrupted you. That was a great way to come back to, I was asking you, you know, your experience. And so was it what you expected when you went to that first recruiting event up in uh, the northern part of the state and said, yeah, okay, these, these look like some of my people and I think that I want to apply for it and, and you got into it. Well, first of all, how did you process that interviewing experience in terms of getting into the program? And then initially, was it what you expected? I'm glad you asked about the interview because I didn't know what to expect, you know. And, you know, when I first went to the reception, I thought, and I'd been to like executive ed at Notre Dame and Harvard. Harvard wasn't fluffy. Notre Dame's program was a little fluffier, but sometimes these adult programs, you know, can be a little bit light on content or a little bit light on like accountability and what you're supposed to be learning. I didn't know what to expect. I thought, oh, here's another adult program. I'll be able to study once a week or something. And so when I went to the interview, though, Shari made it very apparent that she does not approach things that way, right? She is about it, and she gets down to business. And I was surprised how, how direct the questions were and um, how she kept digging, right? She'd ask why, and then dig in, and then dig in, and then dig in. And it was like, I remember coming back and telling my boss, he said, how was it? I said, it was a lot more confrontational than I thought. <laughs> but I, I mean, not in a bad way, but I, it was really surprising. And, and he said, well, are you going to do it? I said, I really don't think I'm going to get in, you know, <laughs> which is a good thing to come away with, right? I think that's one of the great things that LPR does is it kind of puts you back on your heels a little bit. And it, it gives you the attitude that this topic matter is not something to just treat casually, Right. We are fighting for our lives, basically, in this country. And it's, it's a great group, and it's a happy, optimistic group, but it's also just serious enough to make you realize that, no, we, we really have to learn this stuff, and we have to learn how to defend it, 
and that can't really be taken completely lightly, right? So I was very impressed. I like with the way the you put that. That's I mean, that just from the beginning of talking about because I've been through some different leadership programs. Maybe lots of people have, and you kind of go in thinking, okay, well, you know, this, I'm smart. I can check the I can box here. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think there are times when people do that, even with LPR. But they like they like you said, they quickly learn that we we do take our ideas seriously, and that whole issue of being confrontational. I like the way you talked about that because we want to test people, and we want it to be tested. I mean, that, that's that's part of what we've created is this sort of culture. I mean, people think about oh, they must all agree. I mean, there isn't really an LPR position in one sense. No. I mean, we're we're talking about you know. The position is we agree with the, the, the fundamental ideas that the founders came up with in terms of underlying individual rights and, and having a, a, a government that's designed to protect that. But after that, in terms of application, you know, we're open to argument and right. and people making their case and, and being engaged, you know, being engaged citizens right. to say, let's persuade each other. And it's not just, it's not hapless confrontation and it's not confrontation for confrontation's sake, you know. And confrontation is maybe a strong word to use because, you know, Shari, right? When she when she's at you with the question, she's got this big smile on her face. Because, and what's great is because she, she believes this. She knows it's the truth and she knows it's right. And that's how all the instructors are, right? I mean, you're not at us just to be at us. It's like, this is important stuff, yeah. right? And we don't have that much time, right? TikTok, man. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it goes by quickly. At least most oh, people think that. So anything more that you want to discuss as far as the, the experience of the classes that you want to tell our listeners about? I think it's just so well planned and organized. The flow from the first class to the last is just so well done. I mean, there's. it seems to me... And it's pretty challenging material, especially if you have a day job like I did. Almost everyone in there either had a day job or they were parents and a day job and homeschooling, whatever they were doing, right? So um, to really do all the reading and the material is challenging, but it all works together really well. You all have really thought about how to organize it. I love the fact that you keep us off balance just enough, you know? Like there's some classes, like especially... The classes when you walk in and you know you haven't done speak out yet with Senator Schaefer, you know, and he's going to pick you randomly to answer some question, right? I mean, you have that feeling like, you know that feeling when you're leaning back in your chair and you're about to fall over and you don't? It's that feeling like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. But it's, it's really well done. And it does teach you to think on your feet. It also teaches you, I think, where your holes are, too. Now I go back and I think, you know, I really should read more of this, or I really should think through more of this kind of platform. And now when I even watch, I watch the news or check my Twitter feed or something, sometimes I'll, I'll have a retort for someone or an answer or a question, like in my head, because you, you all have trained us to do that. So yeah, and the Defender of Capitalism so contest was did something. you, before, I mean, you, you had this a really unique background, and it looks like, it sounds like a pretty intense interest in the American founding and freedom and those ideas and, and having led the Libertarian Party, did you feel like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a defender of capitalism. I already know about this stuff. I mean, did, did you feel like coming in, okay, that'll be something that I'm in agreement with and I, I know where they're going with it? Or was it, uh, tell us more about you know that particular piece of it. 
I think especially pertaining to capitalism. Yeah, I went in thinking I, I knew, right? I, I knew about capitalism and I had the gist, right? Um, but like, like I told you a little bit ago, you know, I'm not one to quote, you know, quotes from Locke or von Mises or, you know, I, I just don't have that. I don't even, I'm a former sister, I don't even quote scripture. That's not my thing, you know, but logically I could reason through most anything. But I really didn't realize until going through class truly how fundamentally clear and simple and moral capitalism really is. I mean, it really didn't sink in until I went through the program and heard from you again and again. So had you read Atlas Shrugged or any Ayn Rand before the class? I had read uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Okay. Yeah, and that was a brilliant book. I read yeah, that's that. sort of concentrated. Oh, gosh. Yeah. No, no, no fiction, just going after it. I mean, in, in many ways, I, we've talked about this before, where maybe that's what we should use instead of the, the full Atlas Shrugged story. But people are different kinds of learners. And a lot of times people really do get more from seeing it concretized with the characters and the, the storyline and so forth. But that, that had to help you. I think you had mentioned that after the fact, but having read Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal probably helped your understanding. Yeah. I, you know, I read it, but I, I have to say, I, I never studied studied it. Like I read it, it made sense. And I think it was it was helpful that my family has always been fairly freedom minded. I didn't really realize how much so until, you know, you start to meet other people's families and you know <laughs> we were at one point eligible for food stamps and it was not even a question. You know, we just didn't do that. That's you know, we don't rely on the government. We, we we pick ourselves up and we can do this. We work hard and, and so it was always surprising to see how ready how readily other people would go for government handouts or yeah. promote those things. So we were all I was already kind of raised that way, uh-huh. but never like the scholastic and intellectual bent that, you know, I, I hear you on your podcasts and you can go down so many wonderful paths that, you know, I, I just don't do so. So what made you decide? Well, first of all, you, know, you did well on our written quizzes. And so you were in the top group and, and invited to participate in the final group. But what made you decide to make your final presentation? And just, again, for our listeners, we select 10 people, a group of 10 finalists from the group of 70 or so class members who, who get invited to, to compete and to present for the Defenders of Capitalism War. They, they get to make a presentation. They make a case for why capitalism is the only moral system. And then we have a dialogue. And Mary, your case was why the, the Pope should be capitalist. And, and that was a, a you know, unique take in the first place. But what made you decide to go from that angle? Well, first, I thought perhaps the panel hadn't heard something like that (laughs) too often, right? I wanted something a little provocative, I guess, you know. And we hadn't really discussed it much during the course of the course of the program, right? The ties between Christianity and capitalism, really. But to me, it's so fundamental, you know, it just, I don't understand why that connection isn't made more. And a couple of times during... Now, are you saying that connection isn't made more with this particular pope or any pope from the past or Catholicism generally, why Catholics (laughs) don't get it? Or what do you, what do you mean by that connection? Well, okay, I'll give you, especially this pope, he's really not at all that way. I would say Pope John Paul II was much more in line with what we're talking about. But Christians in general, or even, even I would say if we wanted to broaden it to say believers, you know, people who believe in God in some way, the Judeo-Christian uh, belief, I never really understand why that connection isn't made. If the entire basis for Christianity is obviously moral, why would Christianity not embrace and promote and defend 
capitalism, mm-hmm. right? Why do so many Christians promote handouts and social programs? And, and this just makes no sense to me, right? Because there's so much force involved in, in, in every level of, of administration of those kind of programs, right? So, but, but approaching the, the final exam, I think particularly the fact that uh, part of one class, you, you spoke a lot about Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. And I could see some other hackles raising in the in the room because there were a lot of good number of Christians in the room, and you know Mother Teresa and altruism and and what occurred to me when you were speaking was that no Mother Teresa was actually very selfish. She was very self interested, and then it occurred to me like God is very self interested. So I remember mentioning something to you about it after class that day, but then when when I finally progressed to the to the finals to do the oral part of the, the exam, I thought this would be really something to dig into and it might be interesting and it probably won't work because, you know, I didn't think you all were godless heathens or anything, but still. <laughs> I well, thought, well, maybe are. it'll make them mad, but I don't want to make them mad. But You know, it's interesting. You, you, you said that you know, it was a unique approach and it was, although there are lots of people who get to that part of the finals who are certainly Christian, and yes. and they think that, that there's a bias against them, especially when we're talking about Ayn Rand. And frankly, there might be one, but the approach I take with the program isn't that I'm trying to convert people to be objectivists in the context of Atlas Shrugged or Ayn Rand's philosophy, even though I am an objectivist. It's, you know, can't we have someone who can make a good case for defending capitalism and make the moral case? And it's interesting how you, you made that moral case. You were very effective. But I personally do think that there are, are many, I understand what it sounds like you don't understand about how oftentimes Christians have that conflict. And you mentioned that, that Mother Teresa really was selfish. I'm not sure I buy that. I mean, do you think she would say that, that she was selfish? No, no, of course not. And, and I, I don't like to use the word selfish anyway, because I don't think the basis of capitalism is really being selfish. I, I would say more appropriate, probably self-interest, right? right? God is completely self-interested, right? He made us, I mean, and I speak from the standpoint of, a, of course, a, a Catholic Christian, but as a believer, I guess, so anything I say here is my viewpoint on this, but God created us, right? And he wants us for himself. That's very self-interested, right? He wants us all back with him. And Mother Teresa was very self-interested because her monomaniacal goal was to get to heaven and bring as many people with her as she could, right? And that's very self-interested because what that brings, that brings someone like Mother Teresa, it brings me joy, right? When someone finds But how do you, how do you uh, reconcile the, the issue of Many people, and I think potentially, well, not potentially, certainly Mother Teresa is an example. I mean, part of the reason why we bring her up in class is you know, the, the whole issue of you've got to sacrifice, right? You you have to sacrifice and be unhappy to get that maybe selfish end in the other world in heaven. But you, you know, on earth, you have to be a sacrificer and not be self-interested. Yeah, and How I do think, you reconcile that? I think that's where the disconnect is, because you don't have to. I mean, even Christ himself obviously gave the ultimate sacrifice, but all of it, where where things are completely consistent, is all of that is completely out of love. It is completely free will, right? Um, And that's Mother Teresa and the saints. They do that solely and completely out of love, right? And this is an act of love. Much love has to do with sacrifice. Love is basically willing the good of the other, right? 
not necessarily at your own sacrifice. It often is because that's how much you love. You just, love is such a creative giving force, right? So the, the genuine visceral nature of love is to give and to empty oneself. And even when you become a sister, they, um, they talk about the kenosis, the emptying out, because that's this natural human urge to do when you love someone enough, right? Never is it forced. Even when you become a sister, right? You go in voluntarily. Vows of poverty and obedience, all of that is voluntary. And God himself doesn't force us to love him, right? He, never, you know. Then it's not love, right? How awful is that? If, yeah, you know, and I think you I love really... you, God, because I've got to, right. you know. Right. Like, you know, I love I think, your wife. I think you were I... really articulate amongst many different parts of our our uh, dialogue in the final group, but particularly about that whole issue of free will and someone doing things voluntarily. And that's certainly a crucial part of capitalism, as well as really articulating that issue of love. And I I mentioned that in in, in the award, because I think that you were talking, I mean, you gave some examples in maybe biblically phrasing it, be fruitful and multiply, but your entire focus was on, on love and production and voluntary trade. I think one of the biggest things that set you apart was how you handled the question. I wanted to d- delve into this a little bit, if you've thought about it since then. And one of the, I don't know if it's a trick question, but you know, it's designed to test someone, really, is to ask, you know, what about this whole issue of self-ownership in, in, to the extent that a person can say, well, you know, if, I, if I no longer want to live, do, do I get to make that choice? And I really thought you articulated that well, both in the sense of how you thought that would be horrible for someone to do, to make that decision, and you would try to love them out of that decision. I think that's how you said it, something right, like that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the first reaction is how awful must that feel to be at that place where you don't even want to live anymore, you know, or to be in such pain that you just want it to stop. Um, it's an, it, you know, and I don't, I don't really think I've ever been there, but uh, the, the completely empathetic part of me uh, bleeds when I think of someone being in that, in that place. So the key, I think, is not to legislate what they do at that point, right? It's, it's almost too late. It's like, you're a financial advisor, right? They taught us even at Harvard. If it comes down to you're in the boardroom and you're just teasing apart the numbers and moving them, that's too late, right? This is historical data you're looking at, right? If, if we've let someone come to the point where they're that desperate or in pain, really the point is, as human beings, is like, how do we love someone enough to get them out of that dark, awful place that's usually so internal, right? How do we, how do we stop it from getting to that point? And it's certainly not by throwing all responsibility over to some social welfare program or some social worker from the county, right? That's not the connection that someone that is going careening down that dark path needs, right? They need a human connection. And that's where, where we as individuals, we need to have the freedom and the openness and the love to do that, right? If you, you know, I used to live in San Francisco, and I think there's scores of suicides from the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Yep. There's, I think, 20 people, I was just hearing last week, maybe 20 people who have survived that leap. Every single one of them, when asked what went through your head from the moment your feet left the railing, they said the first thing was regret. I didn't want it. Like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have done that, right? And then it was too late, right? That's fascinating. And... You know, there's a great photo that sometimes you see circulate on the internet. There's a guy on a bridge, and I don't know where the bridge is, and he's obviously on the side where a jumper would be. And there must be 15 people 
with their arms wrapped around him, gripping him, not letting him jump off that bridge. Obviously strangers. And they've got ropes wrapped around him like, don't jump, right? And that's, that's human nature, right? Is the preservation of life, even a life we don't know. But is that in that case, you know, they're trying to force him against a decision he's trying to f- use his free will to make? I mean, that, that's part of why I wanted yeah, to ask you about right, that. Because you, you, right. you ultimately said, I mean, and I intellectually I was wondering, okay, does she really believe this? I mean, you were convincing, but do you really believe that, okay, self-agency means that? I mean, ultimately, people, no matter how much they have love for that person and want them to change their path, or people who believe legally that we can't, as a society, let people do that, do you really believe that someone has that kind of agency? They do have that kind of self-ownership. I think they have to have that kind of self-ownership. Yeah. Really. I know, because anything that stands in the way of that means I've got to use force on that person, right? But, you know, shame on me for not knowing or not doing something before another human being gets to that point, especially someone I know, right, or love. But boy, uh, it is a slippery slope, right? Because even I think we talked about it after that question was that we have to make sure, does that person have free agency, right? We're not talking about minors. We're not talking about sick children. We're not talking about people who are mentally, like, really not capable of of doing that. And that's where that gray area that's so hard to deal with is, right? right? But I would not want to go on the side of, no, we force this and force this. No, let's deal with what the real, the real issue is. Right. You know, an MD psychiatrist friend of mine said once, he spoke about suicide, and he said, you know, suicide is like going into a refrigerator and opening the door and seeing this rotten, hairy, black, putrid bowl of fruit inside and closing the refrigerator door, unplugging it, and then throwing it off a cliff right? The impetus is good, right? You want to get rid of something ugly and gross and horrible that you don't want to live with, but That's you don't analogy. throw away the whole refrigerator, right? You just get rid of the, the fruit. The, the inclination is right that something needs to be wiped off the face of the earth, but it's not the human being that needs to be, right? So yeah, those are tough questions though. Well, we were trying to, we were trying to push you and see, yeah. uh, see how consistent you were with regard to that, that issue, and, and you, you handle it really well. Was there any questions in, if you remember, in that time with the panel where you were like, where you felt like you were tripped up? Because it didn't seem like it. it. Seemed like you. And part of you know, part of what was so interesting, and this is, I think some of our our listeners will appreciate this. I mean, maybe all of them. I mean, you should. You had such a benevolent and almost glowing manner about how you were handling what were supposed to be difficult questions, and and it looked like it. we were genuinely genuinely out of love, out of not only love for the people on the panel and love for the the wonderful system we were talking about of freedom and trade and production and humanity, uh, but that nonverbal <laughs> communication came across really oh, beautifully. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> well, because it's genuine, you know, it comes from the heart, and I think like we were talking before we started. You know, if we're going to get anywhere with this, with defending capitals, that's what I love that you base so much of what you do on a moral defense, that moral defense, that's what's going to change hearts and minds, right? Well, what do you do with uh, people who say, I mean, you're somewhat unique in my mind in acknowledging, and you're saying you don't like the phrase selfishness, which I understand. There's a lot of confusion around that. But but if you say, no, what I mean by that is rational, long-term benevolent self-interest, you know, that, that I, want, I want to deal with the world uh, rationally and I want to improve my life, you know, my personal life that I have agency over. It seems like there are lots of people who would say, well, that is, that isn't moral. That's not the good. 
That's selfishness is yeah. not the good. Yeah. Well, you have to look at what the good is, right? The good is for what's the, the best outcome for the most people, right? It's never force, right? And we know capitalism is the system that produces the most prosperity and the most wealth is free of force, right? There's nothing coercive about but it. But do you think that's the essential moral part? I mean, the because the, you're talking about like, uh, and this is my sort of geeky philosophical background mm-hmm. coming out, but it, you know, that's more of a utilitarian, like the most good for the most people, which isn't necessarily what I was focused on in terms right. of like, no, it's, it's, it's about the individual owning their life and their product right. and their being the best they can be you know, in the world as it, as it is. But that starts with the best interest of the individual. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. So if you don't have your own best interest at heart, how can you be any good to anyone else? Right, right. Really, right? It's the old, uh, you know, oxygen mask in the airplane. Yep. You know, I remember in the panel, if I could say Eric asked a great question because we were talking about charity and giving and do I have to give? And he even turned to me and said, well, what if I don't want to give to charity? Does that make me a bad person? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I said, you know, you can do good by doing well. well and you don't part- even have to, you don't even have to mean to do good, right? Just doing well. You do well for yourself. It just creates that prosperity. I mean, we talked about that, right? That's that's that incredible creative generative force of wealth. You know, there's this, I think Christians and everyone have to get away from this thinking that it's a zero-sum game, that there's only so much wealth, right? When I do well, that means someone else has to do worse. Well, that's not it at all, right? And that's the thing about wealth. Wealth and Productivity just creates more wealth and more productivity, just like love. Love is, is a creative force, right? I, you know, if I love mom a lot, that doesn't mean I have to love my daughter less, right? Like I'm taken out of some, you know, bucket of love, you know, that's, it's, you know, that makes no sense, right? But it's another creative force. Love just begets more love. And that's why when we get back to, you know, the, the God part of it is that, we are created in God's image, and God is nothing but creativity and love, right? So it's so congruent. It's so congruent. And there's nothing forceful or coercive or oppressive about it. But a lot of people would say, well, there's all these different you know, definitions of God, your God versus right. my God versus you know, someone from Iraq's God. So that's not, that we can't come together on, an, on a really clear view of what God is or who's speaking for him and so forth. Yeah. Um, I think that at times gets people tripped up in terms of sure. that kind of argument. Uh, but I, one of the things I wanted to go back to is ask you about charity, because your, your profession is nonprofit. You know, LPR is nonprofit. Now, Defenders of Capitalism isn't. I thought it would be silly to have an organization named the Defenders of Capitalism be be a nonprofit, right? (laughs) And my position is that, and I I wanted to ask you this, I didn't ask you in the panel, but I'm going to ask you now. I mean, my view is that there should be no such thing in our vocabulary as nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand in today's world, in this mixed economy that we have today, we have a tax structure and we have all kinds of, and that's part of what's created that whole language. And we can we can talk about you know how a rational uh, rights protecting government would get funded and so forth versus having coercion and taxes. But this idea of nonprofit, my view is that no matter what business you're in, you should be doing it for a profit. Now we can measure profit differently than okay this quarter's financial rewards. This this you know this profit in terms of dollars and cents. But everyone should think in terms of and, and I I may have said this in class. There's a guy, Stephen Covey, who used to use a phrase, you know, no margin, no mission. 
You know, if, if, you, if you can't, it's kind of like you're, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. You have to be able to survive and thrive to be able to help other people or to, to accomplish your mission in the first mm-hmm. place. But I'm wondering what your reaction to that whole line of thinking is. Sure. And it, it makes sense to ask that too, because, and actually, I think people misunderstand nonprofit is basically just a tax status, right? And that doesn't mean that it's just so people can write off on their taxes to give to you. We encourage, I encourage every nonprofit, which is just a type of corporation, really. I mean, people need to know that. We really should be cash flow positive. I mean, that to not be cash flow positive, whether you're a nonprofit, for profit, is, is really self-defeating, right? We do need to be cash flow positive because you can't serve a mission without the tools to do it. And that's paying great people, that's having the right software, that's investing properly. And so there's just, uh, Peter Drucker always said, you know, he talked about doing good by doing well. And in fact, that he stated that nonprofits should be run even more efficiently and more uh, effectively than for-profits because it's based on completely other people's money that they're giving you without an exchange for a good, right? So, so you better be a step above even a for-profit corporation. So they are corporations. They really should be cash flow positive. Yeah, so we're not, we never promote someone coming in at dead even or losing money. I mean, who wants to give to a nonprofit that's losing money? So yeah, nonprofit doesn't mean no cash flow or not net cash positive. Yeah, that's a real misunderstanding by, by most folks there. Right, yeah. Right. This is going by quickly. I, uh, there's so many other things I want to ask you about, uh, including we were talking about your moving to a more rural area of, right. of the state. That's something I aspire to. What is it mainly that, that uh, drove you to, to want to be kind of out, out in the woods of it? Yeah, well, we're moving to Westcliff, right? I, I've already moved there. I'm not, the rest of my family is coming. We're building a home. It's a Besides just being breathtakingly beautiful place, it's still small. I think it's about 628 people or so, maybe. In the summer, a lot more. But, you know, we've lived along the Front Range now for many, for decades. And it has really changed. You know, I remember, I think the sheriff in Fort Collins used to mow the lawn with his gun on or something, you know. I mean, it was good and, for lack of a better word, conservative, right, freedom-oriented. And it's really changed. I, I mean, the, the statists have really taken root along the Front Range. The schools are decrepit. You know, I don't have any school-age kids. I've got school-age grandkids. And we just want to get out of this rat race, you know. The more handouts that are given to the homeless, the worse the homelessness problem becomes, right, all along the Front Range. Isn't it amazing how that works? They've had that mission in the city and county of Denver for decades, and it's been a focus. And they throw more, I mean, there's more money that goes into solving the homeless problem than the entire police force. Unbelievable. And it compounds. It makes it worse. I mean, they, they don't get it. Do you remember Denver's Road Home? It was like a 10-year yeah. program or something? Yeah. Billions of dollars. Homelessness is worse than it's ever been. And especially when there's models out there that do work. And Denver has a couple of them. Stout Street Foundation is run here in Denver. So is uh, Step Denver. Yep. used to be Step 13. Yep. And they deal with homelessness more from an addiction angle. But still, uh, it, the, the premise is a completely free market-based. Absolutely. They don't take any government money. They, they, they solve problems. They're, they're looking at a real cause and effect. And oh. that's one of the things that, to me, is just amazing how... People can continue to say, and, and you understand in their heart, they're saying, well, these people don't have a home and, and they are mentally ill or have drug problems or whatever. So, well, let's have the government solve that problem. But they don't see that cause and effect of it compounding the problem. Compounds the problem. And it, 
and it steals a person of dignity, right? There's no dignity in that at all. And you learn dignity, though, like at Step Denver or Stout Street, where, you know, Step Denver, I think their motto is work works. And that people come in, they teach you a trade. And, you know, Stout Street, they've both been around for over 45 years now. There are free market solutions that work really well. And that's based off of, those models are based off of Delancey Street Foundation in San Francisco. I live next door to them. I had no idea it was, and it's not really a, a, an addiction counseling place. It's really a place for people to get off the street, get back on their feet, completely resident run. It's amazing. I worked at Stout Street, and it is astounding to see a resident-run facility run as well as it does with no force. Anyone can leave whenever they want. Now, some of them will go back to prison, but, but still, it works. And it doesn't cost the person going in to get help a dime. It doesn't cost the government a dime. It, they, they generate income from the residents. The residents work, they learn trades, all that comes back. The residents get counseling several nights a week. Food is all donated, and they have people working the phones to get donations who are residents. And I'll tell you, there's no one better at getting on the phone and hustling for donations than a recovered crack addict. They know how to work, they know how to work a phone, you know. (laughs) They put all that energy to something productive and useful. These are amazing people. Yeah, Yeah, there's so many good models like that. And it's unfortunate they get crowded out because of the government taking over, trying to take over that and doing it so ineffectively. But you mentioned um, that's part of your motivation to to be out in the rural area. And and, and you also, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about. You, You mentioned you know, that uh, the Westcliff area is a lot more conservative. Yeah. And it sounds like that's a label that you feel comfortable with. I, I actually don't. I don't consider myself a conservative. I guess because I don't know a better one to substitute for it, really. I mean, it's, I think, like selfishness. For lack of a better word, that kind of puts a label on it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. What, what word would you use, Mike? Well, I, I'm an objectivist, okay. um, which is more confusing than even, oh, right? <laughs> right? Because, like, because there's so many people who what don't really understand what this is. What are you objecting to? Right, right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but that's partly why I have the, this idea of I'm not a conservative, because right. what, what we were trying to conserve was a radical idea in the first place. And so I'm comfortable with the idea of a radical, an American radical who is for the founding ideals. Labels are difficult, but in this political world, I want to ask you about that. Because you mentioned at the outset, you know, the that Amphil won't deal with people who are really on the woke side. And, and this whole woke thing I want to ask about, I mean, it, it, to me, hopefully we're maybe at peak woke right now. <laughs> you know, that, that, we're, that most Americans who are not really ideological, who are not really that interested in politics, like a lot of people who go through LPR, they get, you know, they can get a little bit engaged when they have to vote for someone every two or four years. But they're, most Americans are sort of in the middle and they're seeing the absolute wacky, irrational, destructive nature of lots of the manifestations of the woke ideology right now, mm-hmm. uh, right. which is a very healthy thing that that's starting to happen. I, and I, I, Like I said, starting to, because I think we're hopefully at the worst of it, although I can imagine it could get any worse. And, and it's partly because of the cause and effect of the school systems that we have and the, the underlying ideology that's, that's permeating the culture. But I think sometimes conservatives uh, or freedom lovers, just like libertarians think small in terms of the battlefield. Mm -hmm. I think there are definitely conservative politicians who are so focused on the cult, you know, quote, culture wars, Mm -hmm. including being anti-woke. And they sometimes, you know, come across, I think, unfortunately, as being anti-gay or anti-individual. Right. 
want you to, I want you to comment on that some because I think that's a mistake politically, both yeah. politically and ideologically. I mean, I, like I said, I think the whole woke movement is full of all kinds of destructive things, and I'm anti-woke as as much as I can be. Although when you think about the label, you know, awakening, right? Right. That's not necessarily it's bad. stolen from yeah, stolen exactly. from what it's supposed to mean. Exactly. Just like classically liberal. Now you say liberal, it means something entirely different, right? Yeah, and conservative is a tough one too. You know, we had K. Carl. Smith came and spoke, and he he told us about the conservative uh, label, too, which he was, I think he was spot on. But yeah, and I think when we say anti-woke, what we really get at is that coercion to not only, because rights are rights, right? We're all born with the same rights, the same individual rights. But what wokeism wants to do and is forcing down our throats through multiple mechanisms is that, no, I'm... LGP, whatever, you know, I don't really care. But somehow those rights are superior and they have the right to coerce. You will bake my cake, right? You will make my website. And, and that's just wrong. I don't care who you are, what ideology, what gender, whatever, right? And that's what we, you know, at Anvil, we don't, we don't deal with that kind of stuff. We don't deal with Marxist ideologies. We don't deal with promotion of any kind of collectivism or statism. We're just against all that. And all of those things are kind of coming in one basket now, though, because they all have to do with coercion, right? They all have to do with special rights at the expense of someone else. And somehow we've, we've lost the fact that me exercising my rights never costs someone else theirs. Otherwise, it's not a right, right? That's the line. Your rights should never cost me because then it's not a right anymore. Just like charity done by force, it's no longer charity, right? So we don't deal with that. And that's one thing I like about, you know, a place like Westcliff. These are just good, small-town Americans. Many have moved in from other places just because these are people that want to live their life, be independent, be maybe as self-sufficient as they can. I don't really meet that many preppers, but we've got our off-grid folks, too, you know? Yeah, in, my, um, in, in some of my dark times, I'm definitely a prepper myself. I know, right? Well, <laughs> it's good to be, you know, prepared. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's something to not that. Not doomsday, right? Yeah, but, absolutely, and that's but a balance. It takes two minutes for things to collapse, right? But so. you, also, you also mentioned small town, but it sounds like you've lived in lots of big towns. Right. And like have New an York, appreciation for that. Right? New York's a huge city, but especially back in the day, it was like it was like a million small towns all together, right? You had your neighborhood. Neighbors watched out for each other. Neighbors did things for because you didn't have the nanny state taking care of you or or force feeding you from cradle to grave. We watched out for each other because no one's coming to save us, right? We're coming to save us. And in fact, you know, I, I started this this website, a witness to capitalism. And part of it is I want to, as I head towards, you know, I'm a few minutes over thirty, as you might have noticed, Mike. And as I head towards those days when I may not be working a day job, you know, I can't count on Social Security and all these handouts and stuff. Who knows? And plus, I don't want to, right? No one's coming to save us. We've got to do that. So that's, when, that's something I want to ask you about, the small town, that independence. That independence. And that truly is an American spirit, right? I mean, it's, you mentioned Tocqueville, and, and the, the spirit of Americanism is about independence and then interdependence. Interdependence. That's that's one of the key things that sometimes I think people who are doomsdayers think about is, you know, that they want to go find their little, you know, small town or very rural, as I often want to, escape, you know, gulch, gulch type of thing, get get away from the the big city. But they don't recognize that the big cities are where the division of labor really does take place. 
you know, mm-hmm. and people don't have to grow their own food. They can trade for lots of values. And, mm-hmm. and big cities are where lots of productivity and dynamism come into an economy. And so there's this balance of having, right. you know, people realize that. And that's where, you know, the, the big cities were productive because you could have that kind of, like I said, dynamism. But then you have this, you know, coercive status philosophy and it kills it. It kills it. And there's, there's no reason that it has to go that direction. But, you know, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, right? We constantly have to sweep up around the edges to make sure we're protecting our individual rights. You know, freedom is lost in inches, isn't it? So the cities get that, just the bigger we get, the more controlled, because the bigger you get, the more power there is to have when you get into office, right? And then that creeps. And unless we keep nipping in the bud, or a catastrophe happens, right, and brings everything back. But And I, I like the fact that you bring up, and you bring up a great point with people in maybe this small town in particular, very independent. But independent doesn't mean... Isolation. Isolated, right? I think in a small town, just like the small neighborhoods in New York, in a city of 10 million, you'd have little Italy or little this, or even the small neighborhood, you'd all know each other. You acted like a small town because you all cooperated, you all did business together, you all lived closely together, right? So that's what you get in a small town oftentimes, not all the time, right? I mean, there's some really wackadoodle small towns out there too. But on top of that, and just having more space, we miss, we miss having some space. You know, I love the fact that you know, I can stroll down to the grocery store and half the people in there are packing heat, you know, and just because <laughs> that's what you do. I know when I go for a walk in the woods, I'm, I'm carrying, you know, <laughs> you but and it's, me both. it's okay. But there's a lot of people out there who'd find that offensive. Like, oh, why, why do you feel like you have to have that kind of threatening force yourself? You know, why do you need to have, why do you need to pack heat? Uh, that's a whole different time. I mean, because I can't fight a bear. Yeah, I that's can't right. Or, 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 you know, or a thug. I mean, that's, we've had a number of guests on and we've talked about uh, the Second Amendment and, and you know how someone who's pro freedom pro capitalism does look at that that issue of guns and force and that may be for a future episode with you yeah. I mean, time's going by quickly and i don't want to keep you too long is there anything else you want to tell us about your experience either with the leadership program or defending capitalism and also i want to ask you about your future plans well i think i can't say enough good about the leadership program of the Rockies. The program itself, the people who teach and the people who participate, it's just, it really is life-changing and it's very reassuring to know that there is not only a program like this, but there are people coming out of a program like this. And I know even my own classmates are very active and getting involved in things. And it's it's amazing the energy people have and, it's, and we support each other in that. You know, I, I love your Defenders of Capitalism program and maybe it comes from my a little bit of evangelical background, but I always, I, I like, okay, this is good. We know how to think it and speak it. And the next thing is bearing witness. So that's why I started this little website, Witness to Capitalism. It's barely, I mean, I still, I am not a web person, so I really have to get my act together. But that's a place where people who maybe either uh, have a business want to mentor people in that business so they can see capitalism in action real businesses functioning. There's no better way to win someone over to capitalism and the free market than for them to actually experience it and experience the dignity and the joy of creating wealth and being productive, right? So people who want to mentor others in their business or want to search for a mentor, that's going to be part of it. And also people like myself who are starting to get a little, you know, a little enterprise, a little side hustle going. Absolutely. Um, Because that's another way. And America is still the best place in the world to start your own venture. It's still, right? 
in an hour you can have an LLC and you can, you know, and with the internet, you know, there's so much we can do. So that's something. So I'm going to start that journey. I've started documenting. I'm going to put that online so people want to toddle along with me. And then I've got some tools that I use that I like. So I'm going to put those resources in there. So I just want a, a way to live it out loud. You know? I like that. I like that. Yeah. So for me, I think it augments anything that you're doing. I really have to step up my game, though, to even get to be where you want to refer anyone. But so those kind of things, that's my way. Like Eric said, you know, what if I don't want to give to charity? Well, you can still do good by doing well. Absolutely. Right? You do the world and you do yourself an awful lot of good by being productive and creating wealth. And I hope that there can be more talk among especially believers. How do we... How do we marry that? Because Christianity keeps growing, right? Faiths keep growing. You know, I don't know enough about the Muslim faith or the Hindus or Sikhs. I'm sure, you know, there's plenty of good people seeking good things that the basic beliefs in a lot of ways are very similar, right? So why aren't we embracing this moral system that really is, it's the only way, right? It's the only way. Everything else ends up in violence and death. Capitalism does not. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you're uh, a great champion and defender, and I really appreciate your, your work and, and having this conversation with you. You're full of love and energy, and, and that is what, what America is about. And, and like you said, it's still the best place, and it's still worth fighting Absolutely. for. Absolutely. It's not just a geography. It's a set of ideas, and those ideas of the American founding, along with the ideas of people taking the control of their life and creating values, creating and trading values is what we're all about. And I, you're a great articulator of those ideas. Oh, I appreciate that very. It means a lot coming from you, Mike. It really does. Well, Thank thanks you. for being here. You've been listening to Mary Callen, our 2023 Defender of Capitalism Award winner, and hopefully we'll have her back soon. And hopefully if, if you have enjoyed this conversation, uh, you'll tell others about it and, and share it with them and even maybe recruit them to have the same kind of experience that Mary had. Come to one of our recruiting events. They're listed on the leadershipprogram.org website. We're holding them throughout the state. And you'll meet some really fantastic people, part of the Army for Freedom. Thank you again for, for being with us, Mary Kellen. This is Michael Williams signing off for the Defenders of Capitalism and Capital Idea. Listen to us next time. Thank you. Thank you.